As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Michael, what if I told you that the next logical career move from product is to venture capital? I don't know about that. Well, I think it could actually be a pretty natural transition. So did you launch a fund that you've been hiding from us? Well, I'm happy to announce. No, no, actually <laughs> nothing like that. No, but I, I did actually get a chance to sit down with the one and only Hunter Walk. Ah, Okay. And Hunter worked in product for 15 years of his career, and then he transitioned into becoming a venture capitalist. You don't say. So I, I assume today we're going to break down your conversation with Hunter Walk. You're catching on pretty quickly, Michael. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. 
So yes, I had a chance to sit down with Hunter Walk and discuss his career, uh, what he looks for in founders and products that he invests in, and perhaps the most interesting thing, how he actually analyzes someone's career path when he's looking to invest in them. And it might not be exactly what you'd expect. So Hunter Walk, the Hunter Walk, seriously started as a PM. I don't know why you would think that's surprising. I had the chance to work in product roles out here in San Francisco from about 2000 to 2012. Um, So basically three products, two companies. Uh, The first one was the virtual world Second Life. I was kind of a non-engineer on the early team, um, did product and a little bit of everything else. Uh, Then spent uh, a little bit over nine years at Google, three years on AdSense, and then five, six years at YouTube. the first five years of that, five of six running the product team over there post acquisition by Google. So um, all three of those, kind of the connective tissue there were my love of technology as a creative tool, uh, believing that it helps people more broadly, uh, not just consume, but create, um, do that within communities and uh, for both audience and collaboration. And then um, all of those products um, either were economic uh, uh, models or had economic models to help creators um, uh, see dollars from their creativity if they so desired. It's an impressive resume, very impressive. And and this whole time while following on Twitter, I honestly had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's probably one of the reasons why he's made such a name for himself in the investment community and maybe even why so many companies, they seek out his investment. So after, you know, working at Google and YouTube, why did he move into the VC world? I started to get the notion that at some point I wanted to move from doing to helping. Uh, Doing, I would sort of define as the ideas coming from myself or my organization, my, you know, my team, um, and helping and, and then specifically trying to breathe life into those, iterate them, um, you know, create something that people wanted. Um, Helping in my mind meant um, still the end goal of trying to see things built um, that didn't exist and, you know, that uh, uh, evolved the world in some way. But as opposed to betting on my ideas or my team's ideas, essentially betting on the capacity and capabilities of the rest of the world. But in between his time as a product manager and his time as a venture capitalist, there was a point where he felt sort of stuck. Between a rock and a hard place, you might say? Yeah, something like that. Maybe a little bit of a, I don't know, uh, ironic like sort of uh, place I reached in my career, which was the intersection of being happiest in small teams, working on a whiteboard with engineers and designers, Um, But finding myself increasingly in roles that had myself at kind of the top of the org chart, um, which meant I was spending most of my time actually doing resource planning and, you know, negotiating with other VPs at Google or whatever type of stuff. Um, But I was still too, uh, I guess, control oriented and have too much of an ego. I didn't like having decisions made above me. So I, at one hand, I was happiest when I was just kind of an individual contributor working with teams building stuff. Um, But even then, I always longed for a degree of impact. But then when I finally found myself in roles where you theoretically have that impact, um, my job changed to the point of where it was unrecognizable to what had pulled me into product. And so I was going to just leave Google after, you know. So he goes on to start Homebrew with his partner, Sacha. And their focus is this. They say, our singular goal is to help you build a company of which you could be proud. So I assume given his background, he must judge his portfolio company's products pretty harshly. 
I don't, because we have that capacity in house, maybe from an experience standpoint, I guess I feel like, man, if any of our companies that we backed invest, you know, uh, release a shitty product, I feel really bad about it because we probably could have like helped them. But, um, but it, I don't think it creates a higher hurdle in the sense of having like been in and around product innovation, um, uh, trying to um, preclude taking risks, right? Like it's too early. But he does have one bias. I do bias towards people who, uh, you know, make as opposed to talk, right? So uh, for me, there's a bunch of different types of businesses where uh, waiting for validation from an investor to see whether or not you should put sweat into it um, is a bad signal. Uh, uh, like a marketplace, a marketplace business, right? Like there's a lot of ways before you raise millions of dollars to do quick, cheap tests of whether you can like create demand side or supply side liquidity. And so somebody who may not have done any of that work uh, before coming to us and has no experiences in marketplaces in particular, I'd say like, well, forget even you know, whether you can convince me, like, what happens if you get this money? Like, you're signing up to work on this for a few years, like, isn't your time in those few years, like valuable enough that you'd want to, like, do a little bit of work on this before you come in with a pitch deck. So Homebrew is now invested in companies like Coda, Anchor, Gusto, and even The Skim, who we featured just last week. And I wonder how many of those had strong products before walking in the door with that first pitch deck. Well, that was actually something that we talked a bit about. So what are some things when we encounter really great product people that we kind of push on um, to make sure that we think they can also be great entrepreneurs and two come to mind? Uh, the first is, um, do they realize they're building a company, not just a product, right? So uh, a company is a, you know, a structure that's like larger and more durable than any one product. And so people who are, um, are creating a startup just in order to build something that they weren't given permission to build sort of at an existing company or that doesn't yet exist, but not thinking about what it means to be a company builder. Um, again, not a disqualifying uh, sort of distinction, but something that we like to discuss because in some ways your company is another product and we try to urge people to be intentional about it. And also I, I, there's a reason why I always sort of say this, you know, why do you want to work on this for 10 years? Because I think sometimes people think they're raising 12, 18, 24 months of capital. They, you know, it's obviously a phased approach, but in a, you know, we're all hoping this is successful. And if it is like the founders, whether or not they're in the exact same roles, whether or not, you know, uh, there's a lot that they can sort of decide over that time. But like a founder who sort of comes to me and says like, well, I don't really want to work on this for 10 years. It's the most exciting thing I want to work on right now, but like 10 years, I don't know. You know, I'd sort of say like, well, what, you know, help me understand like when you think the right time for you to exit is because I'm going to be holding equity in that company probably beyond that, you know? Um, the second thing is, um, uh, you know, especially out here in San Francisco and given our networks, like you can see a lot of very qualified people who have spent, you know, have, have spent time in some of the larger tech companies and you learn a lot of things there, but there's also a lot of things you're protected from. You're protected from having to like fight and claw for distribution in a crowded marketplace. You know, you're protected from uh, the idea that like nobody opens your emails, right? Like I could send an email from at google.com at youtube.com and I knew at the very least it would get open, right? This episode is brought to you by Yahoo Finance. 
Wouldn't it be great if you could see all of your investment and retirement accounts in one place? With Yahoo Finance, you can consolidate your views with multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Honestly, this has been a lifesaver for me. I've used Yahoo Finance to consolidate all of my various 401k and investment accounts so I can see everything all in one place. And it makes it incredibly easy to manage. So if you're struggling with that, check out Yahoo Finance. For over 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart a great investor. And that's how Yahoo Finance ensures that you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. So go to yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. I really like that notion about building a company. We we focus so much of our time on the thing that we're building, but whether you're a founder or in product leadership, we have to treat the team with the same care as the product we're asking them to build. Yeah, that's so true. And the early struggles, like forgetting what it's like to be a nobody again, is an interesting point. It's sometimes hard after building or working on something with massive scale, how hard it actually is to get to that place. I mean, I remember when I started the very first company that I ever started, eFuneral, like even just to get people to respond to our phone calls, Mm -hmm. you know, that it was like so crazy. I mean, I remember sometimes it'd be harder to get a response from a funeral director than it would from like a name brand venture capitalist to talk to us about funding. Yeah, I mean that that hits close to home. Um, I'm I'm curious, what does he look for in these early founders? Well, he actually goes on to talk about that. I don't think there's a monolithic personality type, you know, for founders. We work with a lot of first time founders um, with uh, who maybe have more experience, you know, outside the tech industry than in the tech industry, um, but are exactly the right people to be building sort of the startup they're building. And then we work with lots of people who are on their second, third, fourth startup, you know, maybe um, uh, even, you know, after or including, you know, sort of a stint at some of the iconic companies and people come at it from very different perspectives. Um, What I would say is that um, sometimes people uh, who have, uh, who are in operating roles and have had success in those operating roles do two things. There's two different things I I noticed with founders that are less helpful. The first is, they, you know, you know, the expression like to a hammer, everything's a nail. They sort of take, you know, the approach that they've used successfully in their career and uh, over apply that as the, you know, solution for like how a startup should approach a problem, right? And I sometimes say like, well, you know, the best founders uh, aren't just proficient in a tool, they're proficient in a toolbox. And so helping them understand how you solve the problem that faced you 
uh, may or may not be the exact right tool for them to mimic, but it's a tool that they're going to get in their toolbox. We've been talking a lot about career growth recently. I'm curious how Hunter thinks about like a career evolution. Yeah, you should hear his perspective because this is one I actually haven't heard before. One thing I see from a career standpoint um, that I have sort of like a personal bias against is people who stay um, who stay through the first half of the curve but not the second half of the curve. Um, and I sort of specifically made like maybe a downward slope because like the second half of the curve can sometimes mean things are tougher. Uh, your, you know, uh, uh, you're uh, not learning, you're not learning as much from a skill-based perspective, but you're learning as much from a leadership perspective. It's sort of like the implementation and transition and, and scaling and success, not just the conception and launching. And you'll see your things, people say things like, oh, well, you know, it's not as much fun or I'm not learning as much. And they end up leaving 15 months, 18 months, you know, into an interesting company. And you do that, like, you know, there's plenty of reasons to do that, especially if it's a company that um, isn't fulfilling its full promise or you don't, you know, you, you're, you're not working for somebody you respect or things like that. And, you know, all of these are sort of assuming people have multiple options, right? I realize that a lot of the time it's, you know, you go through phases where you just need a, you just need a gig, you just need a job. Um, but I think if you do that several times in a row, um, what that sort of stays to says to me is uh, like, you know, you don't know how to finish. You know how to start, you don't know how to finish. And you do that a few times in a row and all of a sudden you're 30, 32, whatever, and you're like, why don't, you know, I I wanna be a VP, you know, like, what, or like why, why am I not leading things? Um, and it's because you never stayed, you know, you never stayed to finish the job. You never stayed to say, look, as a product manager, um, I'm owner of this product for a phase. And my goal is to, you know, take it from point A to point B or point B to point C or point C to point D, and then figure out whether I'm right for the next phase or not. And if I'm not, hand it off to the next right team, you know, in a better uh, position than it was left, you know, uh, for me. And um, and I think those phases take two to four years, three to five years. Like they're real if you've, and especially if you've picked the right company, um, like there's gonna be a lot of work to do. And I mean, some of this is sort of uh, self-justifying, you know, my own choices and identity. Um, but, um, but I feel pretty strongly that it's not just about sort of creating a rapid, you know, sort of portfolio of small equity grants or a bunch of names uh, on, a, on, a, on a resume, that at some point, you know, did you finish the job matters. Um, more so for, I'd say, linear advancement in an organization or, you know, going from a, you know, an IC role to a manager role to a VP role within industry. Um, I don't necessarily look for that same path from a founder perspective, although, Somebody, you know, somebody, the the founders that maybe have stayed for some period of time, gotten to the point where they think then they're ready to start the company, um, is fine. People who did do a bunch of mercenary stints, I sort of wonder if they're ready to stay for a ten year period. That's slob, right? Um, but like, I don't I'm not passive aggressive in that sense. Like, I'll ask them. Like, we'll have real conversations about it because sometimes people have you know, recognize something about themselves and they're ready to make a transition or commitment or something. It was the big difference between that they realized was, you know, they just don't like working for other people and they want to, they want to build something that represents their values, their culture. 
Wow. I've always tried to stay for at least a couple of years at a job, right? But I hadn't thought about the phases outside of that time really mattering. Being there for various growth phases and how important that can be. Yes. Yes, for sure. And yeah, I don't know. I I am definitely glad that we got to have Hunter on. Yeah, he's a he's a good follow on Twitter too. Yeah, he definitely is. I can confirm that. You could check him out on Twitter at Hunter Walk. Um, so anyway, with all of that, we will be back next week. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you can check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com. 